0: Heart of Wellington, Kansas, Powder and String Outfitters is your down-home one-stop shop for all things shooting, sports, and outdoors. Welcome to the Powder and String Podcast. Welcome everybody back to the Powder and String Podcast. I am your host Kip Eder, and I am in the Powder and String studio here in downtown wellington kansas and i have uh with me remotely peter churchborn and peter i it's my pleasure to have you here i greatly appreciate you coming on and um maybe if you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe your background and and uh where you're at and all that kind of stuff and then we'll get going
1: That'd be great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. My name is Peter Churchborn. I'm currently the director of the Hunters Leadership Forum at the National Rifle Association. Um, we'll we can get into that and what that's about a little later, but lifetime hunter grew up. Um, I'm currently at our Fairfax office in Fairfax, Virginia. I grew up not far from here in Arlington, Virginia, but grew up in a hunting family, kind of came in it, to it the traditional way. Um, but, uh, just eat up with, once I finally was able to get out on my own and had a driver's license, it was, uh, it was it was done. I was done for after that, um, always chasing chasing something. Um, I worked my first job in this outdoor space with, with Ducks Unlimited, and I worked there for almost 18 years um, in many positions all around the United States, in Florida for a while, in Colorado for a while. I lived in Seattle for a while, just outside of Portland, Oregon for eight years, and then I finished up my career back here on the East Coast with DU. After that, I got recruited by the National Rifle Association to come over and work in their hunter Services Department to do more things for hunters, um, and that evolved into this position that I have now at the Hunter <clears throat> Leadership Forum.
0: So you've been well rounded in the, um, you know, the, the, the conservation area, and and you know, with Ducks Unlimited, and then on into NRA and, and anything and everything to do with with the outdoors. Uh, I've, I was. I've got a similar, uh very similar story, if you will. I was kind of the same way I'd, you know, grew up in a little town of a hundred people. I always joked around in my, in my former life, when I lived in Arizona and Phoenix, I would tell people that um, I grew up in a town of a hundred people, if you count the cats and dogs, and it was three blocks from one side, you know, three blocks one way and three blocks the other way, it was tiny. Um, wouldn't had it any other that's way. The,
1: that's the best place to grow up.
0: Absolutely, and yeah. I had, uh, same thing, once I got my license, um, it was all over. I uh, the, My very first hunting dog was a lab um, that I got when I was, I think I was 13, so I couldn't drive or anything, and that was the absolute best hunting dog, I mean, dog of a lifetime, and it was it was because I was able to spend so much time with him. And I remember I went to the local grocery store here, and that was when they had all the VCR tapes that you could, you know, rent. And there was a train your video, you know, train your dog hunting video. And so, man, this dog, he was just, his name was Thor and just an absolute awesome dog. And uh, <clears throat> had a couple of other good dogs since then. But that dog should have, you know, he was just a local breeder, just no reason. I think um, I got him. I begged and begged and begged my dad to get me a dog, you know. And and uh, finally, yeah, I think I got the dog. And he was, you know, probably two, I don't know, two, I think it's like two months past. You know the 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 day you're supposed to pick him up. And seven I, weeks, right? Yeah, wow. I can't remember all that. I, it's been so long since I since I've had a dog and picked a dog out. But he was he was well past. You know, and everything said he should have been. You know, just an absolute disaster. And man, that dog was just amazing. And then from there, I just kind of same thing with you, man. It just everything. If it had to do with hunting, I didn't care what it was. And uh, upland bird hunting lots of upland bird hunting we you know around here we used to have we still have pretty good bird hunting but uh yeah upland upland bird hunting and all that and then i got involved ducks unlimited and when i actually moved to arizona um I didn't know anybody. Um, I had some, I had some family members there, but other than that, I didn't know anybody. And so I just said, "Well, heck, I've been in Ducks Unlimited. Um, we actually started the Ducks Unlimited chapter for Kansas State University. Um, nice. Me, me and some of my roommates had had nice. done that. So then I moved out to Arizona and and uh, tied up with the regional director out there at the time. His name was Adam. Uh, his name is Adam Cresswell. And uh, I we,
1: hired Adam Cresswell.
0: Really? So small world. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes, that was so. You were you were working there. Adam was. He was a great guy. Adam is an um,
0: amazing dude. I haven't talked to him since was. I left. He
1: was the was the um, like the
0: player relations concierge
1: for the hockey team. Yeah, in NHL. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Just an absolute killer guy, and we're about the same age, and so. You know, I just, I went around with him all over the state, setting up chapters and stuff for first year. Oh my God, we
1: probably met at one
0: time. You know, I'm I'm thinking that we had to have, because I was at, I mean, I wouldn't say I was at all of them, but I was at a
1: bunch of them. Because he, I remember when, when, because usually when I would start somebody, I would go there and stay with them for weeks and get mm -hmm. them trained up. And Adam lived on his own and he had a nice pad and he had an extra bedroom, so to save money. I just stayed with him. You know, and you're we talking just got on the road, and yeah,
0: yeah, you're talking, and I'm. You know, I would have never remembered or thought that, but now that you're saying that, I think I do remember that story. So I bet we yeah. have met before. A <laughs> small world. Yeah,
1: yeah. Adam was. A, he was a really. I understand that he has a concrete company now in Arizona. Really, I, you know,
0: I'm friends with him well. on Facebook, and I, I, whatever he's doing, I'm sure he's successful. He's just that type of a guy. He's. Yeah. He's a, he was just, he's just a super, super good person. Absolutely Certain good guy. Ones. So yeah, we, yeah. so I've been heavily involved with Ducks Limited and now here with the, you know, with our studio, um, I mean, excuse me, with the gun shop, um, we do a ton of stuff with conservation. We do stuff with uh, Ducks Limited, all of them, NWTF, um, um, as well as friends of the NRA. Um, so we, we'd help, help, help them, you know, do with their transfers, but also work the events with them and all that stuff. Uh, so. Right. Really, really Good. big well, in that, for sure. Thank you for the help.
1: Yeah, they, they, they all those organizations do great stuff. DU does phenomenal conservation work. And so, yeah, thanks yeah. for the help with that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, it's, I, I we, we say it all the time on this, on this podcast that if you're in the hunting world, I don't care if you're a turkey hunter or if you're an elk hunter or, you know, sheep hunter, whatever it is that you're into, Um, you you need to be involved and and be as involved as you can Um, just because there's a local event for NWTF and you've never hunted turkeys before doesn't mean you shouldn't go Um, because we're all together um, and we're all pushing and and fighting for something that we all love and the other side and I hate hate that it's that way but the other side is just absolutely galvanized in their resistance towards us and against us and what we believe in and so if you don't, you know, if you're not a part of it, man, and
1: and, and they're well funded,
0: mm, yeah, and it's, well organized, and they don't care, you know, to, to kind of put it in perspective from their side, they don't care if they're, you know, a, the pedicai type that are against, you know, anything to do with animals, or if they're against guns because they go bang, they, you know, they are just absolutely galvanized, and they will, they will do anything and everything they possibly can to try and to end something that was so so dear and. And we cherish so much.
1: And unfortunately, in many cases, they're really wrong. Um, You know, we base all of our decisions on science um, when we come to wildlife management. And they base their decisions on emotion and feelings. Yes. Um, That's very dangerous uh, for especially how we manage wildlife uh, through the North American model of conservation. It's just feelings and emotion are not how that whole system was set up. Set up on science
0: yeah and and we, we talk about that as well is is that if it wasn't and as you well know if it wasn't for the hunter, there wouldn't be nearly the amount of animals that we have today
1: absolutely not yeah I mean, we, we learned we teach that in in um, hunter education. And hopefully that sticks with some hunters or most hunters, but it, it doesn't. I, I find that when I make my travels that we talk about Pittman Robertson and and it's I'm always um, a, um, a little worried because I'll talk to people and I I don't know what that is. People have been hunting for a long time. So it's time for some re-education. Um, because that is how we fund conser- conservation in this country. Um, there was a lot more done before modern day conservation to set things right after the market hunting days. Exactly. It's important that we make the distinction between market hunting and regulated hunting that we have in the modern day. But after we made the reset from market hunting, it was the hunters and conservation that brought species that were almost extinct back to massive uh, populations that we have today that are manageable and we have enough to harvest the biological surplus. yeah couldn't have done that without uh, the, our forefathers having the great minds to make sure people like Teddy Roosevelt to make sure yes. that those species and those herds were saved to have what we have today. Yeah. Yeah. And it's incredible to think about when you look at how fast our country has grown in such a short amount of time. You gotta figure from the market hunting days, it was 150 years ago, um, that that was going on. Um, And where we've come, especially with our population, you know, when I was in high school, I think we had something like 200 million people living in the United States. And now we have 363 million, at least that's what our census says. We probably <clears throat> have right. more than that. Um, <laughs> but that is almost doubling our population in the time. And we've still managed of all the land that we've gobbled up, all the habitat we've destroyed, we've still managed to maintain those healthy wildlife populations. That says something.
0: Not healthy but or managed, but grown.
1: Yep, growing. Yep.
0: I mean, we've talked again about that on here, but my dad, um, he can remember, you know, in his lifetime, if you saw a deer, that was a big thing. A big deal. And in my lifetime here in Kansas, Turkey, I mean, um, our numbers are down a little bit. You and I were talking a little bit before we got started, but our numbers are down a little bit. Um, But I can remember, you know, I'm talking just in the last 30 years, um, there wasn't a turkey I remember seeing the first turkey, and I mean, I was outdoors all the time, right? And in, in this area, and well, you know, like I said, our numbers are down. I, they, Kansas has done away with the, the fall turkey; there is no fall turkey. And instead of two, you can harvest one. Um, but we're definitely not anywhere near, you know, that you know point where we're like, oh my gosh, it's in, it's we're in jeopardy of, of losing, and you know, all of them or anything. You'll still see turkeys here and there. Um, right. and i'm sure they'll bounce back we did have you know some weather years you know a couple 3 years back and so that did did affect it a little bit but but yeah the 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 numbers of white deer mule deer all i mean it's just it's it it is truly amazing um stories.
1: Absolutely. I mean, just in, in, in my lifetime, I have a a gentleman that works for the NRA that's been here for a long time in the Hunter Services Department, Matt Fleming. He's the most accomplished recurve hunter I've ever known in my life. He's, that's all he does. And he hunts in Maryland and, you know, when he was young, he was, uh, it was a big deal. He shot one of the first bucks in the County with a bow, Um, and now in Maryland, the place that he hunts, um, around Easton, there's a plethora of Mm whitetail. I've hunted with him over there on his lease and, you know, we're we're watching 75 deer out in the bean field. Um, so there's made, just in my lifetime, it's made a massive insurgence of the animals on the landscape.
0: Yeah. Yep. And that's all, I mean, the vast majority of that is due to the hunter. And and the groups that we've that we you know we started off talking about is you know all of all of those different groups and and the other thing I, I, we've talked about as well is that just because you know say Ducks Unlimited does a does a habitat project um, we've got actually a habitat here that Ducks Unlimited locally just did um, they bought a piece of ground and they put it all together and and while yes there is a uh, I mean it, and I think it's only eighty acres it might be a quarter. Um, 160 acres, but um, I think it's just 80 acres. And in that 80 acres, I would say the vast majority of it's upland bird hunting. Um, but there is a marsh in the corner of it and definitely has a bunch of ducks, you know, waterfowl that work that area. And, uh, you know, it's a great little testament um, to, to what you know a group can do and there's also deer on it um, so it's not just for you know d- you know the waterfowl ducks so they, it definitely does cross and i think with regards to the other thing that we talked about too is with regards to the NRA is everything we're talking about is that we're talking about hunting um, and without the gun then you're not hunting
1: so right and it's, a, it's all cyclical it's all part of it it's very very important to make sure that we maintain our our freedoms um, promised to us in the Constitution under the Second Amendment so that we can do those things that we love?
0: Yeah, and I love that you you know that you brought up the point the Second Amendment the other night. My wife and I were watching um, a reel or something, whatever you know, whatever you call them now reels, TikToks, whatever it was. I know I'm not on TikTok, but um, we were watching one, and and it was a couple of comedians saying something, doing something, and and they had this little the, one of them had something in their hand, and it was blurred out. Well, I figured out you know it was a, it was a little water gun. It was because you could tell it was like neon green and yellow, and you know, or or you know whatever, some type of a toy gun. And I thought I had my wife back it up a couple of times and she's like, what are you not catching? And I said, well, no, I'm looking, I want to make sure that that's right. I said, that's a, that isn't it just scary and weird and crazy that, that it's protected under our second amendment that we can have, you know, the right to bear arms. and." They're so concerned about that that they're that it's not even that's not even a real gun. It's just a plastic gun, and they're so concerned. Yeah, it's a squirt gun, and they're so concerned that they're blurring it out that they're gonna, you know, coming back full circle. Um, w- w- they're worried about somebody's emotions and their feelings. I mean, and not yeah. that you shouldn't yeah. treat people with respect and stuff, but I mean, let's just get, <laughs> come on, let's get real here, I, and it yeah, just yeah, it. I, I just they have it.
1: overcorrected in many things, not just that, those things have gone so haywire. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's unfortunately one of those things.
0: Yep. So with regards to your position at the you know, NRA, tell us a little bit about what your um, role is and what that looks like.
1: Sure. You know, um, the first when I started at the NRA, I started as the, the director of the Hunter Services Department. Hunter Services is um, a, a done out of a division of the organization called General Operations um, that provides the programs. Um, And the NRA has done all kinds of great programs for hunters. Uh, We started the Youth Hunter Education Challenge. Probably some of your audience has been through it. Almost like 1.4 million kids has been through a YHEC, called YHEC, Youth Hunter Education Challenge. And it is a day's activity. Uh, where it's like advanced hunter education where the, the kids learn more about orienteering, muzzle loading, archery, uh, rifle shooting, uh, game identification, tracks identification. and then depending on the level how advanced the Y is, it can be a competition or it can just be a educational day um, exercising those skills and learning more of them. Uh, we also are the founders of hunter education in the United States. Um, in 1949, the NRA developed the first hunter safety program, a curriculum ever done. There was, it wasn't us advancing someone else's. It was the first hunter safety program ever done. And it was that um, educational curriculum that was used in the United States until 1973 about somewhere here. Hold on. I've got an original, this is actually, I, I bought this on, where's my camera? I bought this on, um, uh, somewhere on the internet. This yeah. is an original old hunter education card that the NRA used to issue so if you got your hunter education before 1973 it's most likely that you have a card that looks just like this it's got your promises on the back and your name on the front i carry that with me um so we developed so we we probably um certified millions of people in that time to teach hunter education now that the state agencies would utilize and adopt our program and then in the Mid-70s, when Pittman and Robertson dollars, there was a modification to it that allowed for pistols to take uh, a tax on pistols to be added to Pittman and Robertson. At that time, there was then funds allocated for the state agencies to start a hunter education department because there wasn't prior to that. PR dollars didn't pay for that. So after 73 to 75 we basically turned over our records to the agencies, and then they started to teach the hunter education themselves and certifying people themselves. Fast forward to 2015, we were, it's when I got hired at the NRA, we were looking to do more for the American hunter, and um, sitting in this same conference room, uh, we were talking about what we should do, and we had a new guy working here that's like I've never hunted before I want to hunt I said well I'll take you hunting and we said well first you got to get your hunter education so we looked it up on the DNR website in Virginia and there was no in-person class um, that he could take in the next three months that was more than eight hours from us so and this was like September and I was going to kind of take him hunting in November she was like well that's not going to work well they offered a online course by a vendor. And I said, well, that's your only option. You got to take that. It was like $29.99. So he started to take it during, you know, work hours because I wanted to see what it was all about. Right. So I was looking over his shoulder while he was taking it. And I was amazed at how poor the course was. Um, and at that time at the NRA, we were looking to advance some of our online trainings for other courses that we do. We have a shotgun course coaches course. We have a basics of pistol course. We have a range development course, an RSO course. And we were looking to unify those under one new learning management system. So we were investigating opportunities in the world. So we said, why don't we build a new online hunter education course? So when we finally decided on the learning management system, it's a company out in Salt Lake City called Allencom, who has a very robust, modern, new, interactive, tile format in their learning management system. We ended up making an agreement with them and buying their learning management system. And we developed a, a fully free, fully interactive, fun, online hunter education course. So that conversation with that one person at the NRI was like, wait a minute, we started hunter education. We can do this better and we can give it away for free because we had funds within our foundation. And that's what it was there for, Well we ended up spending a lot um, to, develop the, to develop this awesome course. And it's available to take at www.nrahe.org. So nrahe for huntereducation.org. Currently right now, 15 states have it adopted to allow it to be taught in their state, um, some states will certify out-of-state residents, so you just got to go look at some of those states. I don't want to be advertising that that can happen, but it can happen. You just got to go look down through the system and find which one that is. But currently, we have registered, we have certified almost two two uh, 250,000 students for free, which if they would have paid for that, would have been a lot of money out of their pocket. And we also have the state wildlife agency match. So how Pittman and Robertson is given to, back to the agencies, there has to be, the state agency has to come up with a match amount first. They have to come up with the first dollar and then Pittman and Robertson matches the next $3. That works for their hunter education allotment, but also their wildlife management allotment. And most of those matches come from hunting license dollars. But in the hunter education world, most of that money, prior to probably 15 years ago, came from a in-kind donation. That's what the statute says, in-kind donation. Most hunter education in the United States, before online hunter education came about, was taught by a volunteer. Probably most people listening who took hunter education were not um, young, didn't take it online, took it from an instructor in course. That person most likely was a volunteer. Well, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a big actuarial that decides how much that hour is worth. They roll up all those hours and it comes up with a dollar amount. And then they submit that with their their federal aid coordinators and the state wildlife agencies submit that through a process. And that ends up being real money back to the states for them to do more hunter education or wildlife management we looked at that and we said, wait a minute, there's no reason why our free course shouldn't also uh, be applied in the same manner. So we went down to interiors several times and talked to their lawyers and talked to their people. And sure enough, they said, we agree. Your course can be used as match. So now there's another algorithm that decides what our course is worth on each state. It's basically what the uh, for profit vendor charges or the average. There's only one vendor and they have a couple different courses, but it's the average of what they charge is what our course is worth. So, for example, in Kansas, Kansas uses our Hunter Education course. So at the end of the year, Kansas will ask me for how many people has taken our Hunter Education course. I'll send them a list. Say it's 3,000 people times $39, whatever that equals. The state will get that times three. Um, for help them do more hunter education, whether it's um, field days for people or hunter education is a lot of different things now it can be called R3, but our course will help them get that money. Whereas the current for-profit vendor that can't work because it's not an in-kind donation. Someone's actually making money off that where we have zero take it. It costs me money to run that course every day. Um, to have the back end of it working. So that's another way that we've helped in the world of hunter education and also state wildlife agency management. Um, we, there's a pile of other things the NRA does in the background that no one knows about on a daily basis, helping hunters, being advocates for uh, public land shooting, advocates for at ranges, looking at different things that may come up on ballot initiatives and helping guide in certain directions. Our ILA people do that. I'm not a lobbyist. I can't touch that. But we have a whole team of people that help with those type of things um, on a daily basis.
0: So it's very, very in-depth and all-inclusive, it sounds like, with regards to, you know, com- encompassing everything that has to do with, you know, the hunting world, but also, um the guns or maybe it's just the opposite you know the firearms and 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 the hunting that goes with it because you know there are I've, I've got um one of my one of my pro staffers here um he's a pistol shooter and he's never hunted but he you want to talk about he's he's shot he's probably shot uh a uh, hundred thousand more rounds of of ammo than i have or probably more than that probably
1: a million more rounds of ammo than i have well, well, you know, then your friend needs to be thanked because um, he is just as much a funder of conservation as you yes, or me, mm-hmm. um, maybe more because he's buying so much ammunition. You know, Pittman Robertson is funded from ammunition and firearm sales. It doesn't say hunting. Yeah, maybe,
0: maybe you hunting. should, obviously you're more, ed- more educated, I know what the, the act is, but I know just yeah. enough to, to, to say something that would probably be a little bit on, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about it, because um, there's a lot of people that are in, you know, that, that, that are definitely two A advocates that are two way, um, you know, they own firearms, they hunt, but they they don't really completely understand or maybe, maybe never even heard of what Pittman Roberts is. Maybe tell a little bit about what that is.
1: Probably not. Yeah. So Pittman Robertson was a bill that was introduced in 1934 by two senators. Um, I believe they were senators. Somebody's going to somebody's going to write in and go, no, he's wrong about that. Um, But it's been around since 1934, and basically, it takes it's a it's a excise tax that adds 10 or 11 percent, depending on if it's ammunition or a firearm. That's any ammunition in any firearm, and then there's also attacks on archery equipment as well, and I, uh, bows and arrows. I believe it's 10% for- every. that money goes into m- a fund, it's,
0: it's 10%, uh, the 11%, that's for pistols, isn't it? The 11% is for I, I, pistols. I believe
1: I'm, I've got to research that. I'm 99%. It's a, maybe 11% for I think pistols. It's, and then, yeah.
0: I think it's 10% for everything else, and pistols are 11%. I'm 99% 10%. sure. But again, I might be wrong, but I'm almost positive that's what it is.
1: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So that goes into a fund and it's all firearms and ammunition. Um, and so it's not just hunting shotguns or 12 gauge shotgun shells. It is all. So if you're a target shooter, you're a funder of conservation. And there was a study done uh, in 2022 by an organization called Southwick and Associates. They do a lot of research for the industry and they broke that down. And they proved that 78%, 78% of Pittman-Robertson in 2022, and it was about $1.4 billion, I said B, not M, $1.4 billion was the Pittman-Robertson fund. So 78% of that was funded by target shooters, or people were buying guns that weren't for hunting, whatever they were buying them for, either self defense or target shooting, plinking, competition, whatever it was, they're buying that not for hunting. So they are primary funders of conservation. Yes. Very important. And, you know, we've, I'm not gonna get in the politics of it, but we have had a massive purchase of firearms and ammunition. In the past 10 years, it seems to be whenever there's a threat, people go out and they're worried, they buy some things, they think they may not be able to get it again, they may never shoot it, may go under the bed, or they poured ammunition. Um, so those people that are buying that are primary funders of conservation.
0: Yes. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but I heard that um, this was about a year, year and a half ago, that since twenty. 20- I believe it was twenty sixteen. There was something in excess of ten million new first time gun buyers. Um,
1: that's right. A- ap- during and after the pandemic, people were worried about whatever civil unrest. They worried they're not going to get them again. They worried about protection. And we had between seven and ten million new firearm owners in the United States.
0: Yeah, and that's just and all
1: those people. You know, if you're in, if you're a target shooter. Um, uh, or you wanted ammo during the pandemic or after it. You knew you saw that it was oh, yeah. hard to get um, and very expensive uh, because we had supply chain issues going on. And then we also had when you, if you were a new purchaser of a gun, what do you do? You want to buy some ammo with it too. And then you're hearing that there's shortages, so instead of buying two boxes, maybe you buy five boxes. Mm-hmm. So. You times that time, seven to 10 million people. And that caused a little stress on the industry and left less to be had by those who were looking for it.
0: Yes, completely and totally. And I'll tell you one of the things too, we, so we, and we, uh, started our shop in, in March of 21. So, um, it wasn't in the middle of that, but it was definitely still during the, the hectic part of it. And, um, I, you know, you and I were talking before we got started, we were both just came back from SHOT Show in, um, in Las Vegas. And I probably told this story um, more times than I can imagine because you're there meeting people and, you know, telling them about your business and how you can potentially, you know, connect and do business and stuff. Right. Um, That's what
1: that week's all about. Yes. Making relationships.
0: Yes. And, uh. So we started, and and I had a few, I had my home-based FFL before, you know, and uh, before we started the actual brick and mortar. And I had uh, talked to a couple of my distributors, uh, reps, and I said, hey, my goal is to have 50 guns on the shelf, you know, so to say. And they all said I was crazy. Like, there's absolutely no way. I mean, you couldn't get anything. And um, so we were, that was at the start of 21. And we opened the doors March first, and um, we had seventy-seven guns. And they told me there's no way you're even going to get to thirty. And uh, so I can relate to exactly what you're talking about. And but one of the things throughout this process of us <clears throat> of us starting the business and and you know coming through to today is the amount of individuals that that genuinely don't have any idea what it takes to purchase a firearm. Um, boy, the 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 smear—I don't know what the right word is, but the amount of of information misinformation that's out there with regards to being able to just walk in by a firearm you know and there be no background check or there be no you know there's just no nothing there to stop some you know crazed individual you just couldn't be farther from the truth and and I was i mean because we're in a smaller town and obviously I'm not going to say any names or anything like that but but the amount of people that that go and purchase a firearm or excuse me, that haven't purchased a firearm that then, you know, we open this shop and they're like, well, how does that work? And to explain to them, yes, you have to go through a background check. Yes, no, there's no guarantee that you're going to walk out the door with it today. No, there's, you know, and they're just, they don't have any, they had no idea, you know, and then you go on and you explain to them that, you know, the whole, you know, you well, no, you can't buy, well, well, why would anybody come buy one from you instead of buying one on the internet? Well, it doesn't – if you buy one on the internet, it still has to come to it. They really have no idea, like literally no idea. And it just – it was – that was very interesting to me as to, to the smear campaign or the, the, the skew that they try to – the spin they try to put on on the purchase of a firearm and, and how much it's not it, – there's so much stuff, misinformation in that
1: you know on the same on the same notion um tra- transitioning to the hunting is the same deal that goes on about wild game meat consumption um most non-hunters that don't know the facts thinks that we're all trophy hunters that we don't uh, eat the meat that we're not out there and they don't recognize that there is a whole community and there's laws around and waste mm-hmm. Most people, some hunters maybe not even know what that means. There's laws around time of the day, seasons, um, the sex of the animal that can be harvested during a certain time of year. When I've explained that to people who have no idea about hunting, they just, I'm the, known as the hunting guy around my my wife's friends and most of them don't hunt. I grew up just outside the the capital, Um, and when I go to parties, they're still always amazed at my stories of where I go and what I do. And when I talked about, Oh, well, you know, i I went and going to blah, blah, blah in October because the season's only what? Yeah. yeah. I, the season's only got 30 days to get it done in this certain state. What? You can't, you, if I want to go out there in July and do it. No, there's laws. It. Well, why you explain? Because there's science behind it. They have no idea. Yeah. Um, And, and that gets me, I'll get me, that gets us to the point of talking about what some of the great groundbreaking research that the NRA Hunters Leadership Forum did in 2015 about American attitudes towards hunting and the animal rights movement. That study has been done for many, many, many years. Um, by an organization called Responsive Management. They're another one like Southwick that does a lot of research for the industry. Um, The NRA, under the guise of the Hunters Leadership Forum, uh, uh, hired them to do a big study on American attitudes towards hunting and the animal rights movement, where they went out and they had focus groups and they talked to non-hunters. We had every geographical region of the united states we had a focus group and in those focus groups we made sure that we had every ethnicity race creed color age group so that we could get the concept of what these people were thinking And they were all non-hunting adults and we learned so much information we have volumes of information about what we learned and that of course any good research project spawns more research so we did another follow-up Uh, internet 18,000 person research to quantify some of the questions that we had. And we came out with a lot of great information that we wanted to get out to the world. So we ended up writing a book called How to Talk About Hunting. It was a 200 page research resource book, not Unbelievably thrilling reading for the average person, but for someone who works in this industry or either works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or a wildlife agency or a manufacturer that makes a product um, and some hunters that really want to understand what the non-hunter is thinking, well, we found it out in that research. And the three biggest things that we learned that how non-hunters view us Um, overall, we found out that 70 at the time, 78% of them supported us when given the facts. Um, and those main three things that, that once they learned, these were true. So when we started some of these focus groups, we didn't have the 78% on everybody. Um, but when we heard the things that they were saying, that were not true, either they learned it on social media or a friend told them, we asked them, okay, wait, if you were proven that this was true, this, and I'll talk about this in a minute, would you support punters? And they were, in 98 to 99 to 100% of the cases, when they learned what this is, and I'll explain what this is in a second, they were like, well, of course I would support that. Why would I not support that? And that, this is these main three things. So hunters out there, pay attention. The number one, the number, the third thing was the economy. When they learned how much money hunters spent in the rural economy, keeping rural America alive during the hunting seasons and in fuel and hotel rooms and um, uh, hunting licenses and hunting licenses, a whole nother subset. What I, what I refer to as economy. So I'll break that out. That is basically once they were able to understand that hunters funded safe wildlife agencies. And we have this thing called the North American model of conservation. And that's a hard to explain to, uh, to have a hunter to have a minute to explain to somebody, but if they took the time and talked about how that's a nationwide approach is how we manage wildlife in this in this country and that hunters were the primary funders of that with their hunting licenses. And then the state wildlife agency's job is to manage those populations. They have very smart people that are have all kinds of ologies degrees and their job is to manage those things and hunters help pay for that. And we also spend a lot of money, billions of dollars a year, keeping the rural economy alive with our travel. The second thing was We are good for biodiversity. So we help the state game fish agencies manage wildlife populations. Their job is to manage wildlife populations. So in many places in the United States, somebody is going to have to manage these populations um, to keep them healthy. Hunters actually pay to get that done. And when they learn that, they go, of course, you know, we have a Uh, a problem not too far from here, probably 20 miles out that window in Maryland, where they have a situation where their parks are overrun with uh, white-tailed deer. Well, they have a program that in about a month out of the year, the law enforcement come in and they have bait stations and they harvest those deer at night out of the eyes of most of the population to, to maintain biodiversity within those parks. Otherwise, the the white-tailed deer would get out of control, and everyone would be running into them in their cars. They would get to a point where the population would be in starvation level, or they would get disease. So someone's got to manage that to keep what's called the, uh, they have to harvest the biological surplus. Over there, they're choosing to use the police to do that. In most states, they use hunters to do that. So when you explain that to people, and we pay money, um, we don't get paid to do it, they're overwhelmingly supportive. Why wouldn't I support that? Of course they would support that. And then the number one is the food aspect of it. When they actually understand that we eat the majority of the meat that we harvest and use it to feed those less fortunate, they are 99.9% likely to support our activities. Yep. Um, that's why we at the NRA just started what's called Wild Game Meat Donation Month last November. Hopefully, you saw it somewhere. I did. Outdoor Wire or some one of the NGOs, Ducks Unlimited, helped promote it. Delta mm-hmm. helped promote it. Um, SCI helped promote it. And that's basically making sure that the world understands that there is a place if you wanted to uh, donate your wild game meat to feed those less fortunate. Almost 16 million pounds were donated last year that resulted in almost 80 million meals for people that needed good protein in their diet. And then almost 660 million pounds of wild game meat is harvested in the United States annually six hundred and sixty million pounds um and we we just finished up another big research project on american hunters wild game meat usage and that's i have pages and pages about that that what they do with that where that meat is who they share it with um next year's wild game meat donation month is going to be about making sure that we as hunters not only help those less fortunate but also share those meals, cook a meal for a non-hunter. Because what we learned is that non-hunters are more apt to support us when they know a hunter. We asked them in the research, well, why do you support these activities and you don't hunt? And they'll say, well, my neighbor, he's a hunter. And he's told me stories and it sounds like the things that you do are right. Um, And so I I do these talks all the time. I'm doing one actually to the Southeast Deer Association game managers, and two weeks at the federal training center, all about this topic of what I call protecting cultural acceptance of hunting, protecting cultural acceptance of hunting. That's long, and it's like, oh my god, that what, that sounds boring, um, but it's very important because hunters in the United States only represent. 5% of the population, five and a half, percent 4.5%, whatever numbers you look at, but there's anywhere on a given year between 11.5 and 15 million hunters in the United States, depending on what actuarials or tables you're looking at. If you're looking at the national survey that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service puts out, or you're looking at the raw data of hunting license sales, it's still, believe it or not, hard to figure out exactly how many hunters we have in the United States. But on any given year, it's about eleven and a half to fifteen million hunters. It's still a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the number of people that are living in the United States—about five percent. So, protecting cultural acceptance of hunting is important because the majority of hunting of of, uh, adults in America probably will never hunt. But someday they may be given an opportunity to vote on our rights called ballot box biology, Mm -hmm. where the anti-hunters can get an anti-sportsman's ballot initiative on the ballot. So it gives the general population the ability to vote based on emotion, not science. Um, And we need the majority of the non-hunting American public to understand that what we are doing is good for biodiversity. It's good for the economy and it's good for the, we eat the food. Um, and that basically what is that book that we wrote, um, sums up a lot of that research. Chapter 10 is all about, um, protecting cultural acceptance of hunting.
0: Yeah. And I, 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 that's very interesting to me. I would have, I would have thought that that number would have been a little, I knew it wasn't much, but I would have thought it would have been a little bit more. And maybe that's just because of the area where I'm at, you know, there's more hunting, but you get into the, you know, the more, um, you know, populated areas and that numbers, you know, much less, if you will, or there's
1: more, there's more non hunters, I guess, in that area. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is regional. It's in, and it's people that we are surround ourselves with. I, I, I get that reaction all the time yep. when I say that, and people are like well, everybody I know is a hunter. Well, we yeah. surround people with what we like—birds of a feather. Um, you, you got it. <laughs>
0: yeah, another thing along those lines that I think that that people need to make sure that they're aware of, and this is something that I've just recently become aware of. I say recently within the last you know year and a half, two years of getting into this industry even more. And like I said, I've always been a hunter. I've always been you know um, involved in the outdoors in some way, um, but even non-elected or non you know non um uh, issues that that come up that where there is no no uh, vote that's taken on it and things such as putting people that are getting put into positions to make decisions like on your um you know your fishing game, game commissions yes. and things like that yeah, yeah. it's just it's yeah. it's it's pretty um opening and <clears throat> eye opening and I even recently had a, uh, just, uh, it was been the first of December. I had a conversation, uh, with one of our state, uh, representatives and uh, I've got a good, good relationship with him. And, and, um, we were talking about a couple of, of things that were going on in the state. Um, you know, some of them had to do with, you know, with baiting, some of them had to do with, with, uh, trail cameras and stuff like that. And, and it was comp- there was a couple of things and he's a hunter, um, but there was some stuff that, that he didn't even know. And I'm like, yeah, you need to make sure that you're aware of this and, and, um, you know, that's something that, that the, 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 initiative that they're trying to put in place, it's not, it, it's completely and totally, it's not, it's not to protect the animal. It's not to, to do for any reason other than just to, to get, to stop hunting. And that was yep. what the, that's what the initiative is. It's just, it's just cloaked. Unfortunately,
1: there's a lot of that going on today. And I always tell hunters, you know, just like anything, our, our, our rights, um, that we are granted as citizens of this great country that. Other people in other countries would love to have these avail- uh, these rights, and and sometimes we take them for granted and we don't pay attention, but you know, we should be paying attention. Yeah. Go to your game commission meetings, hunters. Read the fine print, um, and then make your voice heard. Uh, you have a say in ultimately what happens there. So um, well, like I, the- I go to many game commissions. I'll be at one in Oklahoma and, and – in Next Monday, um, I'm going out to the game commission meeting in Oklahoma, and I'm always surprised. I look, and I've been to many. in Virginia, Florida, many game commission meetings, and there's not many people that show up for those. Find out when they are. Understand what's happening in your state and have a voice. As
0: somebody who's not been to one, guilty, I have not gone to one, but I guess I want to ask you the question, are the people that you see there, is there a large percentage or is there a noticeable percentage that are absolutely not hunters that are there? To push that agenda? No,
1: unless oh. something comes up on that initiative. And then they are very good at being able to um, get the word out and get people there. Um, so if they're, they they want to vote on something that's not positive for you and I, they will make sure that they're there. Yeah. But on most of the game commission meetings I go to, unless there's an issue that they're voting on, today's it seems to be dogs and hunting um, in particular, the two I can remember, one that I did virtually in Virginia over COVID had hundreds of people on it. And then one that I went to in Florida, all related to dogs. There was lots of people there pro hunting. Um, what, so it what, just depends on the for issue. Dogs, What me?
0: specifically with dogs? What do you,
1: uh, mo- you know, nowadays there, it's the uh, dog chase issue. Uh, not retrieving; it's mostly using dogs in the process of hunting whitetail deer.
0: Okay, yeah, it's, it, it it was it was pretty um, it was pretty eye opening to me, and I guess it's just I should have known. But whenever you know, I'm talking to this state representative, and, and I brought up you know the the uh, trail camera, and that there's some western states where right. you know they've just I think it was Utah that completely banned them. Um, like Arizona oh, was it Arizona, Arizona.
1: and maybe I, Utah may have done the same thing. I think but Utah I is,
0: I think Utah. I knew, I knew Arizona as well, but I'm almost right. positive Utah. And I think, I think Nevada and Idaho both have something that's coming down or they've talked about, or just right. barely didn't. But you know, when I explained that to, to him, um, he wasn't even aware that that had happened out there. And I said, yeah, there's right. a push for it. And, and you know, I mean, I, just because you've got pictures of deer doesn't, doesn't mean that you still, you still have to go out. You still have to put in the time. You still have to put in the effort. You still have to, I mean, it doesn't, it it doesn't guarantee you that you're going to go out and just be able to, you know, kill something. It's, it's, it's.
1: And some of those, you know, and I looked into that because some of that was getting a lot of bad press along the way. And I'm not here to give my opinion on either one, but I know in some of those states, Um, there was an issue with pressure uh, on public land. There was so many people going out, you know, you've got a watering hole and it's got 18 trail cameras on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there is uh, somebody who is a rifle hunter who um, wants to only rifle hunt. So they're putting their cameras out during bow season. And the bow hunters, Historically, people listening to this hope you should know that the majority of post seasons come in before muzzleloader rifle. So the archery hunters are out there trying to get their thing done. When usually there's not many people on the landscape, but then all these hunters are in there setting up their trail cameras and you know pressuring the animals on on uh, public land. So that was some of the reasons behind it. It wasn't all about fair chase. It was also about just people on the landscape disturbing, the, you know, the animals. No sportsmanship. Not, not, yeah, no sportsmanship. And, you know, the, to, to hand it to the guys that were rifle hunters, they didn't know. They're just, you know, a month before the season, they want to see what's going on out there, so they go put their camera up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's why we have wildlife agencies, so they can help that. You know, They're using science to monitor the animals to see what they're doing. If all of a sudden they're disappearing or being, you know, we in, or we're spoiled, you and I in Kansas is mostly probably private land that we yeah, hunt. Yeah, we don't have. In Virginia, I'm hunting all private land. Um, we're spoiled. Um, in Virginia, I get a plethora of whitetail tags. I think I can shoot two doe a day for almost 70 days or something. I don't, but I could. Um, whereas some people only get one tag. Um, in, in states and they may only get that tag once every three years. Mm -hmm. So it's a big deal. And so the pressure on the animals is a legit concern in some of these places. You know, you look at the shed hunting. When I was young, we go out and try to find sheds and it wasn't a thing. Now it's a thing.
0: Oh, it's a big deal. In some
1: states you have to have a license to shed hunt. Yeah. And I know Utah has cut down shed hunting several times just because of the pressure on the animals. You get a hard winter, they got to get food fast as soon as things start turning green. And their bedding areas is where you're going to find those sheds. And if everyone's tromping through their bedding areas, they got no time to rest. Mm -hmm. So that puts stress on the animals and it leaves you with a less uh, healthy Healthy. herd. Um, And that's all part of us managing being good stewards of the land and managing game. And that's why we have to trust in our wildlife agencies to make the right decisions to make sure that we have healthy game populations.
0: Yeah. That's one thing that, um, I mean, it is, I guess it's twofold. It goes, you you look at it either way. Um, you know, the hunting landscape in Kansas has, has changed, you know, drastically since I started. Um, I don't remember what year it was, but I know it was, um, sometime in the late 90s um, or early 2000s is when they started allowing out-of-state hunting. And, but before that, I mean, I remember you, uh, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was only a few places I could count them on both hands in this county where I couldn't go hunting. And um, I always joke around and say, you could have went to these farmers in, you know, the, in the early 90s and said, I'll give you $250 an acre for all of your bottom ground. And they would have been lined up for a mile to sell you all the creeks and you know lowland and everything that was just basically you know yep. trash ground to them. They, there's nothing they could do yep. with them. And yep. now that ground there, if you see a sale come up and it's got a majority of bottom ground timber or anything like that in it, you know it's bringing. Yep. You know, around here, if you can get something for three thousand dollars an acre, um, that's kind of the average. But if it's got right. a bunch of bottom ground and it's you know river ground or something, it's not unheard of. See it here, you know, hit six grand. Um, and they, it's insane.
1: I, I was talking about this at the shot show with somebody who does land sales, and recreational property is almost in some places it's worth more than ag. Property. It is
0: here. It is one hundred percent. I we. I'm also. I have. Uh, I'm with L2 Realty. Um, I've had my real estate license for a long time, um, and so it just fit. For us, we just recently, my wife and I just recently changed over to them, and uh, it was just a great fit for us because we still had our license, but we were busy with everything else, um, and so it made sense for us to, to transition over to that. But yes, one hundred percent. If it's got good bottom ground, if it's especially if it's on a river, um, it's the the bottom ground will bring fetch far more than absolutely,
1: what the, absolutely. and absolutely the same very similar story. When I first started turkey hunt. In high school, I had a really good friend of mine, Craig Brooks, taught me how to turkey hunt, it's my mentor, and little place down in Virginia on the Rappahannock River. We would go, you could go knock on people's doors and say, Do you mind if we turkey hunt in the spring? And they said, You want to do what? And turkey hunt. Go ahead, help yourself. You can't touch that stuff now. Yeah. It is so leased up, or it's a family or a friend that, that turkey hunts, it's just you don't have access. And you know, that leads me to another point of this, this initiative that the state wildlife agencies and NGOs and the NRA were a part of it called R3, Recruitment, Reactivation, and Retention, trying to recruit the next generation of hunters in the United States because our numbers have dropped at, from a height of maybe 24 million hunters in the United States to now 12.5 to 15 million hunters. We really haven't grown many new hunters Net new hunters in the past 10 years, we've been hovering at that same amount, although we've been trying like heck to recruit new hunters with all kinds of programs, mentoring programs, um, free hunting licenses, uh, skip hunter education, all kinds of classes to teach you what to do with the game and how to hunt in the effort to try to recruit the next generation of hunters. And it's rough. I'm not saying that it's not working. Um, well, because we haven't dropped significantly, but we have no net new, um, would that,
0: so it's, is that it's, a, it's a little alarm. Is that affected? Or I'm a, I guess the question I would ask is, is <clears throat> I would assume that with your baby boomers and the and and that age group of people, there's a large number of them. So maybe a positive to that is, is that you're, you're staying net equal with the amount of hunters because you have a larger
1: percentage that are, right. they're going out. Yeah. You, You bet. You bet. That's some of it. But also, we have a you know, I I have a a talk that I do about this, and I have a graph that I show the migration of Americans from living rural to living urban. Oh, it's crazy, and what that does to the landscape. Not only to the landscape. I mean, I'm 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 watching it right here out that window right there is Route sixty six that goes into Washington, D.C., and right across the street from here is a farm that was a farm growing up here for forever. Now, this is concrete 90 miles outside of Washington, Mm D.C. Growing up, I grew up three miles from the Pentagon. Um, We used to drive just 40 miles out this way and hunt. Now, those opportunities are not there because those farms have been eaten up with shopping center and homes, and that... Rotates, you know, you get to the edge of suburbia, and you have mixed industrial, and then from now, outside of mixed industrial, now we have the 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 satellite home developments that are coming out in DC. Um, So. The, the, the landscape changes. You can't find a place to hunt. Is what I'm the point I'm yeah. trying to make, and I'm losing places. And I grew up here, and I used to farm, and I'm losing my spots.
0: Yeah, I'm the and, same. And I'm in bro. the industry.
1: I know how to knock on doors. I know how to talk it. Yes, uh, how to how to get permission. And then once we move from urban to a a rural environment, excuse me, from rural to an urban environment, our philosophies change. We do different things. We. We get involved with the PTA, we get involved with our churches, we get involved with travel sports, and there's not time to load the kids up and go try to find a place to hunt. Yeah. So that is affecting who and where we hunt in the United States. Um, it's having an effect on everything. And, you know, if you look at population dynamics in the United States, if you look at the U.S. Census Bureau website, this is not my uh Uh, estimations, this is the U.S. Bureau, and it says that in 25 years we will have 402 million people living in the United States. Um, So that's basically another 50 million people. I I actually think that 72 million more people in the next 25 years. And if we keep going on the rate of not being able to recruit hunters, if we maintain our level of 15 million, we will only be 2% mm-hmm. of the United States population in 25 years. 2% of people. That's dangerous. So that's why it's important to make sure that non hunters understand how important we are to the life cycle in this country.
0: Absolutely. 100%. And I can totally relate to what you're just saying. It's the same. I would when I was out at Shot Show, I had I had a, a friend of mine call me and said, "Hey, do you know this guy that has this ground right here?" And you know, and I didn't, I I actually didn't answer the phone. So he sent me a text message, and then I just had to text him back. I was like, "Hey, I'm actually in in Vegas, and you know, so I'm not going to be able to help you." But it's the same thing around here, and I mean, we're just you know, we're I'm the biggest metropolitan area we have is Wichita, and it's you know. I think the I think the whole county is, you know, less than three quarters of a million in the whole county. So it's nothing like that. But um, but it is very much so, um, you know, the hunting opportunities for people that are just getting into it are less and less. And we we run into it quite a bit here, um, my pro staffers and I and and friends that you know, if we find or hear, um, you know, there's a kid that needs to hunt, absolutely, 100%. Let's figure out a way to get him in, um, you know, to the ground and hunt. And Because it's just, you know, even, I remember when I moved back from Arizona to Kansas in 2011, and I started calling, you know, and I had to talk to these people, you know, continued to talk to these people while, when I when I lived away, but didn't really talk hunting. And when I moved back and I'm like, hey, I'd, you know, I'm gonna go hunting, and they're like, ah, well, you know. <laughs> That's least or whatever. And so I got to a point where I was like, oh, well, I just, I just want to take my kids then. Can my kids go? And, uh, right, yeah. I was down to one, um, little quarter, little over a quarter section of ground along a Creek. And if I was being honest, um, you know, 10 years before that, I would have never even hunted that ground because it was just, it was, it was just not right. that good. Marginal. But yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, so you know, then you're like, oh, and then you're you realize real quick uh, how how lucky you are to have that ground. And you bet.
1: And and especially in places in the country where you only get a tag every couple of years, we're we're relying on hunters to take other hunters. And it, and and I can do it. I do. I take a lot of people. I mostly waterfowl hunt, um, and I have some good spots that are not far from this office. And but and they have a great time. Up to up to this year, we had an incredibly horrible waterfowl season. This year, it was bad. Really, but years past, we've had been very fortunate, very good waterfowl seasons, and they have a great time. And they're like, "Oh my god, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to get my kids into this." And I'm like, "You will never be able to replicate this success this close to this place." You can buy a hunt somewhere, maybe in Canada or North Dakota or something, but this has taken a lifetime to get these spots well, and, and
0: a lot of money. Yeah, not to mention the equipment. I mean, that's the other cool. thing is is Water that fowl. waterfowl, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a big, obviously a big waterfowl hunter myself too. Um, but I'm to a point where, you know, I just couldn't keep up with all the equipment stuff. So now I, I'm that guy that, you know, piggybacks with somebody else because, you know, and obviously – I I reciprocate that on the other end, you know, in different ways with regards to to it because right. I'm I've been there and I know that you know the cost associated with all of those you know decoys you and 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 the leases and stuff like that. So it's just leases, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, very expensive. I, I noticed, uh, I, I, you know, if I'm if I'm being completely and totally transparent and honest, one of the reasons why I got into this industry here, um, not the only one at all, but but one of the reasons that I looked into it was. I started noticing um, I'd had, I've done a couple, little bit of travels and couple, made a couple of trips over to Europe and started noticing that um, if I'm not, I'm not independently wealthy. And if I don't have the time, the, the type of resources it takes to be able to go out and be able to continue the lifestyle that i so much love and, and, and want to be a part of to, you know, I, I do like to waterfowl hunt, but I also like to deer hunt. I like turkey hunt, I like pheasant hunt. And all of those are different for the most part, different types of habitat. And I knew there was no way if I didn't get into this industry in some fashion or way. And yeah. And so that's also part of the reason why I did it. And I've got adult children and now I've got grandkids and I'm like, man, if I want, if I want to have that, that, that experience with my grandkids, this is going to be the only way I can do it is to, to, right. to get into it this way. And you uh, bet.
1: yeah, cause it, it is very expensive to do. Um, Waterfowl, yes. It's it's if you're a nut waterfowl like me, you'll buy everything that comes on the market that <laughs> I think that'll help you be yeah. successful. Um, we're crazy. Yeah. It's past obsession, um, certifiable, but it, it, but just getting into any hunting in general is with, with the gear. There is a good group out there that we have helped here at the NR at the Hunters Leadership Forum NRA. It's called the First Hunt Foundation. And they're probably the largest. Well, they are the largest mentoring organization in the United States that you can look them up and find a mentor in your area if you want to get starting. And they use the holistic approach of the family. Um, they want to get everybody involved that they possibly can um, and then teach them how to get it done and also set them free. Um, it's not a glorified guide service that takes people over and over again. It teaches them how to be successful to do it on their own. And a lot of their mentees have now become mentors. Um, but there's good that there's good organizations out there that are trying to get that done.
0: Yeah, and for our listeners out there that are you know trying you know that, that you've found yourself, and it's not very hard to find yourself in that position where you're like, well, I want to do it, but how? Don't hesitate right. to don't hesitate to uh, to reach out to you know this ind- to people in this industry because the people in this industry for the most part are very very open to help and and you know yeah. they they i mean that's that's the experience I, I think i could speak for you and say that very rarely do I wanna go out and just hunt by myself, sit there, you know, not only, especially with waterfowl, man, it's a ton of work throwing them decoys out, picking the decoys up, you know, and all that. So it's it's nice to have that, but it's the camaraderie, it's the experience. We're not out there, we're, we're right. definitely not out there just to shoot something. Right. No, We're out no, there for no. the experience. There's a lot of times where, you know, and again, I think I could speak for you, there's a lot of times where you're just sitting out there and it's just God's beauty that you see and the, the, the animals and having them, you know, interact and out there, you know, having no idea that that you're there. One of my favorite thing to do whitetail hunting is I love having whitetail right underneath me. I'm an archery hunter. Um, and I'd love having those whitetail right underneath me or being in a blind, you know, a ground blind that I've built, you know, and put in and just they're there and they have no idea I'm there. And I'm just like, man, I am in your kitchen and you have no idea that I'm here and uh you know it could this thing could have went south any any different way and then you've got you know 20 30 40 minutes an hour where you've got a deer at you know six eight feet 10 feet 10 yards yeah it's just it's just the amount of uh, of excitement that happens um you know it's it's the experience it's the fun of it matter of fact this year i didn't shoot a whitetail i didn't i didn't shoot a deer at all so um went out several times had had opportunities just didn't didn't like the way that things were or um you know i had i had one of my target bucks that i think it was like 16 yards and i screwed that one up um he was coming in and I moved wrong and at the wrong time, and I thought I was good and you know and and that's right there is why you get that feeling when you're in your kitchen or when you're in their kitchen it's yep. just it's the experience it's not the hunt it's not the kill
1: exactly right it's going so I just it's, i I was talking you know a waterfowl hunter and I was um, preparing for a hunt this year. I th- actually thought I was done, and I had a lot of things put away, and somebody asked me to help out with the hunt and i've got all the I got every apparatus known to man. Um, So I was like, yeah, I'll help out. No problem. Let me get all my stuff together. And I spent a cold afternoon between my barn and my truck and trying to load up everything up and going and finding this and that. And I said to my wife at dinner, I said, you know, I, I, I enjoy that process. Of just getting ready for it, and then waterfowl hunting is social. I think that's why I like it. You get to, you don't have to be quiet, and and you can have a heater. Um, right. So I like being with my friends or new people and telling jokes and stories. Mm-hmm. And that's that's for successful, great. Um, but if not, it's. I, I was funny because I was literally it took me like two hours to get rid to get ready for this hunt. And I was like, I, I enjoyed that small part of the process. Yeah,
0: it's so funny you say that because I can 100% relate to that. And I am a winter type guy. I, I'll i take I'll take zero degrees over anything over 90 anytime. Uh, I can't. I totally agree. I can't. I never
1: got above 55 degrees where I lived, it would be
0: perfect. Yeah. And my wife's <laughs> just the opposite, but I hate mosquitoes. I hate poison Ivy. I hate humidity. Uh, I hate bugs. Amen. Yeah. All of that. Amen. But Man. <clears throat> getting ready for deer season, you know, I just love going out and, you know, making sure that, you know, your feeders are full and making sure that the ground, you know, especially if you get a new piece of ground, then you have to go scout it. And, you know, oh, you I bet. can remember clear back limb, things
1: get, places we can climb trees, all kinds of stuff.
0: Yeah. I can remember clear back in the day, um, before we had all of the technology that we had now, I would, I would always, I had a buddy here in my hometown that was a pilot. And then when I went to school at Kansas state university, I found a buddy that, you know, found a guy that had a pilot, you know, and I would go up in the air and fly over the ground so I could see it from up above and then say, all right, where's the pinch points, where's this. And kind of, you know, mark, market on the map, you know, now with, with, you know, Onyx and stuff like that, you can, you can do it that way. But that's my, f- my favorite part of it is getting, you know, everything set up, getting the, 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 you know, the, the blinds up and going and, you know, your stands up and all that stuff. I like that. And then, you, you know, yeah, by the time you get to season, you're just like, oh, it's almost over. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, oh. <laughs> so I enjoy that part There's of it as more well. To
1: it, than just, than just going out. Yep. Yeah,
0: no doubt. 100%. Well, hey, Peter, I just want to tell you, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's hard to believe we've been sitting here talking for over an hour um, about hunting and, you know, this the, this world that we both um, enjoy and love so much. But I appreciate you being on the uh, the podcast here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah, thanks for – I love spreading the word and talking to a fellow hunter that likes it just as much as I yeah, do. Yeah,
0: yeah, I am I think I'm much like you. I'm made up, and it's it doesn't matter, you know, what it is, if it's has to do with hunting – I'm in. Matter of fact, tonight, I think this evening, uh, my son-in-law are going to go out and see if we can't uh, get on some coyotes thermal hunting because in Kansas you can. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, I think I've said this on here before, but uh, I'm not really much of a predator hunter. I never have been. He is. He loves it, Um, and I've gone with him, you know, and stuff. But this nighttime is just different. I love it. It's it's a good
1: time. Um, it, it It is fun. I, I do quite a bit of it. I really enjoy. I don't know. something about being out there when everyone else is in bed. Yeah. Well, you know, one to four in the morning is when we'll go out and something. We've, we're outfitted pretty good. So we'll be mostly infrared stuff and yeah. driving around in the dark. It's fun. Yeah. That we, <laughs> my, so
0: this is the third year and this will be the first time I've been busy with uh, the this show season. I was at ATA and then shot and, uh, but the first year, my wife—it um, runs from January first to March thirty-first. My wife stopped me at some point. She's like, "Hey, you need to kind of slow down a little bit." And I'm like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "I'm I'm I'm leaving at you know, sundown, and you know, I'm back home by you know one o'clock in the morning, something like that. We're not drinking. We're just out, you know, you know." She's like, "Yeah, but you're going six days a week." Like, oh, fair enough. You're right. Oh, fair <laughs> fair enough. enough. You're sitting home by yourself watching TV and I'm, you know, exactly six days right. in a week. All right. You're right. Yep. All right. But it's, I, I,
1: I actually did. My friends thought I was crazy. They, I've been gone. Right. And I just got home and I'm leaving again tomorrow for almost two weeks on three or four different work trips. And I got an invite on a good, our season ends day after tomorrow or tomorrow. I think I haven't paid any mind on a good goose on Saturday, Sunday. And I was like, you know, I, I gotta spend some time at home. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, it was a a hour and a half drive one way after I took a red eye back from the shot show and I hadn't slept like three and a half hours crooked on the plane. I was like, yeah, I better just do this one. Yeah. My my wife (laughs) called
0: me on, uh, Friday. And she's like, all right, what time, you know, what's your flight? And I, she had all the information. She just wanted to know. And I was like, huh I don't, my flight's not till midnight and I don't get back home until tomorrow morning. She said, Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't go with you this year to shot. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, we would have taken a different flight if that was the case.
1: Different flight. Tomorrow, yeah.
0: Right. So, well, Hey, I appreciate it all of our listeners out there. Thank you so much for tuning in. We greatly appreciate you. If you like what we've got going on here and you've listened to everything, we would sure appreciate if you would go on to, you know, the social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, X, and YouTube. The video portion of this is on YouTube. So if you've ever watched us and you want to see the, you know, listen to us and you want to watch it, then you can go on to YouTube. And if you would like and subscribe, we really appreciate all of that. And uh, we also want to make sure to remind everybody that our our website just went live, so powderandstring.com. So, you can go on and look at all of our inventory and everything, order directly from us. So, again, thank you very much, Peter. I greatly appreciate it. And thanks uh, to all of our listeners out there. Until next time, this is Kip with Powder and String Outfitters.